This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. So, wow, it's wonderful to see all of you today. I can see almost all of you. I have to scroll over to get everybody, but yeah, wonderful to see so many people I know and even Tova Green is here. That's so good to see you, Tova. A couple people I don't know. Is there anybody here who is new today who maybe became, came to beginner's instruction this morning and is here for the first time? Yeah, hi. Um, I'm kind of visiting to the area, so I thought I'd uh, drop in and join you today. Okay, wonderful. And thank you for introducing yourself. Yeah. That takes courage when there's a whole group of people here you haven't seen before. <laughs> Glad you're here and joined us. So my, my talk is, Are You Out of Your Mind? Because I thought that was kind of catchy. You know, are you out of your mind? That's usually a question of horror, of horror, right? Oh, are you out of your mind? I can't believe you said that. can't believe you did that. In our practice, though, as we know, we strive to be out of our minds, our mind, our, or our thinking mind. We're really never completely out of our mind, but we're out of our thinking mind. And our thinking mind is also known, of, known as the small mind. I went to a session a couple of weeks ago. It was a seven-day session, and I kind of conceived this talk in, in that session. And... Uh, uh, it's kind of a dangerous thing to do that because when you're in Sashin, uh, as many of you know, it's a lot easier to step out of your thinking mind than it is when you're not in Sashin. So uh, uh, here I am uh, having a little more trouble than I did in Sashin, but I hope I can. I hope I can get there, and I hope I can be helpful to people that are that have taken up this wonderful practice of learning how to step out of our mind. I don't know about you, but uh, I remember when I was a teenager having um, incredible periods of, I guess, anxiety where I was just like, get me out of this mind. I just want to be free of this, these round and roundabout thoughts and these ruminations and the chaos in here. But, you know, it took 25 years for me to learn that there was a way to do that. And I think the reason it took me so long is that um, I was so into my small mind that I kind of felt if there's something, if something that I don't know about, then it doesn't even exist. So, of course, I went deeper and deeper into this until somehow, I guess I was driven crazy enough that I, uh, when I heard a little bit about this practice, I, I grabbed a hold of it and, and have stayed in it ever since. Um, so our thinking mind uh, is a wonderful thing to have. Uh, and, a, and as we all know, it's a terrible thing to waste also. But it does have its limitations. So this small mind, this self, is also known as the I am mind because it's the mind that is centered around us. 
it's busy uh, affirming this self, this body that we think of as our own body. Uh, and it's busy uh, making sure everybody knows that we're alive because one of our biggest fears is that the that we'll die and our, we'll be gone. So we want to be sure everybody knows we're alive. Um, and, and actually, for most of us, even those of us who are most generous and uh, humble, um, really, the I am mind is all about me. It's, it's all about uh, uh, reifying myself. And um, unfortunately, the I am mind pits us against others because it makes us feel like we're separate from everyone else. And it's also the mind of performance. We're brought up to believe that, you know, it's important to uh, perform and have a meaningful life and do things that are admired. Uh, so we, and we end up competing with others. We have an agenda. We have ideas about how everything should be. We pick out certain people that we really like and we kind of ignore others. We pick out certain activities that mean something to us and we ignore others. And so, but, but it is the mind of doing things when we're in the thinking mind. We do things as opposed to the other side of our mind, which is more just pure awareness, which is a, a, a kind of a willless state to be in, will, as in not having will. Um, and um, so when we're in this state of, of, of no mind, you might say, or no thinking mind, we're, we're not really able to do things. Um, but we're, everything we're doing in, when we're in that, that state is, has to do with awareness and uh, sensations and, um, and just, being, just being, you know, as opposed to doing. So how can we, um, how can we escape from this separate, desperate place of suffering, which isn't always true when we're in thinking, our thinking mind, but it is the place of suffering. And um, because of our separateness, because we feel that we, and because we are, feel a bit of competitiveness towards other people. In order to perform well, we may have to feel that others have to not perform as well as we do. Um, so the other side, or the, the, willless state, the wellness state that we want to uh, visit, that we need, um, that we want to dwell in as much as possible, uh, we call big mind. And um, this is the mind, as I said, of, of pure awareness. This is that little piece of the infinite that is in all of us. And I, I assume that it's in all creatures, all life. Uh, we human beings, however, are the uh, ones who can actually experience it. And uh, I guarantee that you have been experiencing it, whether you've practiced then or not. You've been experiencing this from the time you were a child. When you were a child, you experienced it a lot. As you grow up, maybe not so much, but uh, anytime you're transfixed by something that you see or hear or think, you're in that mind. It might not last very long. You might not even be aware you're in that mind. But um, 
So our practice is to sit on our cushions and learn to uh, experience that mind more and more. And the more we can experience that mind, the more it will inform our thinking mind so that we don't take ourselves quite so seriously, that we can step back from our thoughts a little bit and, um, you know, use some of this wisdom that we uh, store up when we, I don't know, that's not a good word, but we, um, when we, when we can sit and be uh, in uh, just an experience, experiential state. So there's a lot of words for big mind. Probably everybody that writes a Zen book comes up with a few more words. Um, you know, Buddha mind, Buddha nature, true nature, luminous mind or luminous mirror mind. What, what, does anybody have uh, a favorite word that they use for big mind? All right, I will, can, let's see. I got to get used to scrolling over here. How about magnanimous mind? Oh, yeah, that's a great one. I, and I don't have that on my list. Magnanimous mind. Anyone else got one? Yeah, just jump in because I can't see your hands all the time. Uh, okay, great. Well, that's, yes. Um, the unborn, you know. Uh, Parental mind. What you say? Oh, grandmotherly mind or grandmotherly mind? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, those of us over a certain age all know that one. Um, unconditioned mind, kind of scientific sounding, but uh, you know, because it's it's the mind that hasn't been touched by uh, all the stuff we've learned in school and learned from our parents and learned from our our experiences. Uh, I, I also like the one who is not busy. I love that one. Always nice to remember when you're busy that there's always one who is not busy. Another favorite of mine comes from Rinzai, and that's the man of no rank. I find that very, I don't know, comforting. As a person maybe who's been a little bit too obsessed with rank and, and status, to hear that there's a man of no rank in there, a woman of no rank, if you wish, because his students were all men, so, you know. Um, um, and also, um, this is actually the place of enlightenment. So, actually, when you're out of your thinking mind, you are in an enlightened state. I mean, this is not, we're not talking about anything permanent. I don't really think there is a permanent enlightened state, but, but moment by moment, we can be there. And um, so anyway, this, this state of pure awareness of uh, this uh, is uh, uh, something that I think we've all experienced and we want to experience it more. Um, so this awareness, this awareness of which I mention here is... Uh, I've got a book here with me. This is by Anun Tubton, um, who I have never gone to hear, but I know he comes to Austin and give talk, gives talks every once, once in a while. He's a Tibetan master who lives in the United States. And his book, wonderful title, The Magic of Awareness, 
one of my favorite books, I think. It's a book that you can pick up and uh, read um, anywhere. And um, this state of awareness is truly a magical place. I actually got to experience, had an awareness um, episode back in early days of my practice when I used to go to very, very intensive Rinzai sessions that were very difficult. And um, maybe I'd been four or five years into my practice doing, going to these uh, sessions. And one day I uh, was sitting in the afternoon and, you know, kind of feeling that kind of uncomfortableness, physical uncomfortableness, boredom, all the things that session pushes you into. Uh, no stimulation. Uh, and somehow I became aware of ringing in my ears. And I know I've told this story before, so I apologize for repeating myself, but I am a person of limited experiences, so I have to say them over and over. But, um, but, of, but anyway, I experienced the ringing in my ears, and, um, and I, there was something about experiencing it that I knew that it had been going on for a while, but I had never really noticed it. You know, it was... And I, I guess just the, um, the, the hugeness of something so close to me and so persistent that I had not noticed before, somehow it just kind of threw me into this huge state of awareness where I was like just totally, um, totally aware of my own hearing. I, I could hear squirrels outside moving around and I could actually hear my left ear transferring over to my right ear. I swear I felt the bones in my middle ear, but that might be something I've made up since. I don't know. But it was very powerful, and it lasted about 15 minutes, and maybe it would have lasted longer, except that I was starting to be afraid it was going to go away. But it was such an incredible, blissful experience that I, I never really quite understood why. Why, why was this so, so big? Um, and uh, I, I talked to the teacher that led the session that I went to last week. Which his name is uh, Yoshin David Radden, and he's in, uh, the abbot of the Ithaca Zen Center, uh, which I was able to Zoom up to. And I talked to him about it. I, I said, why? Why was this experience so, so powerful? Just, you know, just being aware of my own hearing. And he said, he said, Pat, don't you know, there is just nothing, nothing more powerful than awareness. It's just one of the, it's just the big, just huge. <laughs> so he didn't exactly explain any scientific reason why this should be so big, but it was nice to have his, his, um, um, you know, buy-in on that. And, and um, so um, uh, one of the things, one of the nice phrases I like that, uh, back to Antonin Tubton again, uh, in uh, The Magic of Awareness, one of the nice things he talks about is, is flipping, flipping our consciousness. So, uh, and that's kind of how it is it flips it happens very fast when we uh, go from thinking mind to this silent place in us to this one who's not busy um, and uh, so I'm just a, a I want to read a little bit from from the book from magic of awareness um, 
When we allow ourselves to fall into the heart, letting go happens on its own. So there is no longer I who is trying hard to either hold on or let go. Such luminous experience can unfold in this very ordinary moment because it is the natural state of our mind. Enlightenment is possible because it is already in each of us. It is a natural state of our mind. Oh, I guess I skipped a line. If enlightenment were not the natural state of our mind, then enlightenment would be a result, the fruition of a long and arduous process. But it is not a spiritual trophy that we can attain by being smart or by working hard. It is not an award or a reward. It is already the intrinsic state of our mind right now, just, just as it is. There's a little taste of his writing. Um, so um, there's a, a koan uh, from the Momon Khan, The Gateless Gate. Uh, which is called uh, Joshu Sees the Hermits. Uh, so Joshu is a, a great Zen master and appears in many koans, um, is apparently uh, maybe taking his boat down uh, some kind of waterway and he's, he's got a couple of hermits that he's checking on. And uh, he passes the first hermit who's in his hut. And he says, he shouts out to the hermit, he says, is the master in? So you can guess what that might mean. And the hermit raises his fist in kind of a solidarity, or you know, kind of a solidarity thing and says, you know, silently. And um, Joshu says something a little cryptic to him. He says, Oh, too shallow to dock here. And he goes on down the river to another hermit. And he says, is the master in? And the hermit, you know, silently raises his fist in solidarity. And uh, Joshu says, oh, free to live, free to die, free to kill, free to save. And he gives a deep bow and goes on. So... Joshu is saying this, is the master in, is, uh, I guess, a way of saying, are you out of your mind? Are you out of your thinking mind? Um, and it's interesting about the saying, uh, too shallow to dock, dock here, which I, my teacher uh, told me was, uh, means that when we're in this state, it's not always a deep place. It might not be that deep. It might just be, uh, you know, a, a, a slighter experience, but whatever, whatever the experience is, when the master is in, and it's always the same master, when the master is in, it's a worthy experience, or, well, you don't even have to think of it that way, but it's all, it's all kind of the same. So don't get too hung up about deep or shallow or, you know, big, little, and in a way, I feel a little bit guilty uh, telling my experience with uh, my hearing thing that I told because it makes it sound like it's a big deal and you have to go to a shishan and you have to push yourself into a corner and you have to, uh, you know, really uh, make this happen. Uh, it doesn't have to be like that. Um, but sometimes it is. So that uh, 
that experience for me was making heaven out of hell. It was happened to be the hell of a, a, a very difficult session where I got pushed into a corner and somehow heaven appeared and uh, the intensity of it made that happen. But, you know, in our practice, we can always make heaven out of hell. And I think just, just um, lowering our eyes and um, watching our breath and um, really watching our breath and watching the next breath, we can, for a moment, jump out of the place of suffering and um, experience um, something freer. So we can make heaven out of hell any moment. You can make heaven out of hell with your next breath. I think that's what we do. And, you know, I know some of us, some of you, because we've had a little bit of training here in Tonglen, uh, that's what happens with Tonglen, where you breathe in your pain, you breathe in your suffering, you breathe in tightness and darkness, and then you breathe out. Uh, release from all that. You breathe out um, joy and love and all that good stuff. And uh, of course, it's wonderful if you can breathe that out for other for others as well as yourself. So there, a little small way of making heaven out of hell. Um. So um, I'd like to, I, I realize, you know, that there are some people here that haven't practiced very long and you may not have really had this experience of feeling like you're, um, uh, you're entering a, a state of, of grace when you meditate. In fact, it may be uncomfortable. And I wanted to read something of, uh, in this other book, uh, this book is by uh, Yoshin, the guy who led the retreat I went to. It's called A Temporary Affair. And I wanted to read something to comfort new people uh, because I like the way he worded this. So he said, people new to practice will notice that the tranquility element is quite lacking. True? <laughs> You can feel that, and the mind is being unleashed in Zazen practice. You don't have the normal stimuli. You are left alone with your mind. And most people, when left alone with their minds, are uneasy. They don't know how to be comfortable with the tantrums and the insanities that go on in the mind. It is normal for the mind to be unbalanced when its props are pulled out from under it. So you should know that enduring the, enduring the tantrums and the scatteredness is the practice, not destroying them or being upset or impatient with them. Understand that the mind is acting this way because it has lost its props. Identify that as thinking and relax. There is no need to respond. It will calm down when left alone. So comforting words for new people or all of us actually when we're having a hard time uh, getting there. I, I frequently, I don't know if this is correct uh, Zen practice or not or correct Buddhist practice, but I frequently think of when I find myself in that state, it's a state sometimes we call samadhi um, and or shikantaza, 
Um, I frequently think of those last lines of the Heart Sutra, Gyate Gyate Para Gyate Parasam Gyate Bodhisattva, which says something about gone, gone, gone to the other side. And I'm not sure if it's correct to think that way, but I frequently I think that I've gone to the other side when I find myself in, um, in a really quiet place where uh, everything seems serene and I am just being. And it doesn't happen all the time, of course. You know, it's kind of impossible to uh, teach people how to do shikantaza. You know, it's supposed to be our, our practice. It is supposed to be our practice, not supposed to be. But we can't really teach it because all we can do is teach the front door to it. We can lead people to the door. You watch the breath, sit still, let urges pass by, let thoughts drift by without attaching or grabbing onto them. And maybe, just maybe, and it does depend a bit on your intentions, then that place, you might find yourself in that place, a place of complete calmness and serenity and just being, the joy of just being, deeply hearing sounds and um, feeling your, your sensations in your body. So, um, and it may not last for long. It may just last a few seconds and then you're thinking again and then you watch some more breath and then maybe you're back again and then you're thinking again. You're flipping in and out of, of, your con of this consciousness. Um, and I, I hope that um, I think the one thing we can do when we're uh, meditating is discover triggers in us, triggers in our body that help us, uh, help us get there to the other side. Um, I don't know, lately I've, my eyes have been working that way for me, but it's just lately. It's, it's a, but hooking, hooking my eyes into um, the lowest place that I can see with, without tilting my head forward, just looking in, and as low as I can go. Maybe I see the edge of my Zabaton or maybe the floor or maybe I might see my knees, but I, I focus there. And then somehow, for right now, my current uh, habits of sitting, that seems to kind of lock me into a quieter place. So there's a lot of things about our posture that are, are very helpful for, for this. I think the mudra, our mudra is very helpful because we're touching our thumbs to each other and creating and making a, an oval with our hands and we're taught to put that over our belly. And so it kind of lands so that that mudra, that oval opening is right over your center of gravity, and um, which is very centering. It also pushes your arms out a little bit, so there's a kind of a spacious feeling. Um, and uh, I don't know, for a long time, I actually think of actually breathing through my aura, which might be a little made up story that I tell myself, but it helps. It helps to think of breathing right straight into my center of gravity because um, 
and it gets that thinking or that uh, breathing away from from up here which is where i think my my thinking mind is up here where my brain is um, but I, I suspect many of you have triggers too that you use in your meditation maybe some part of your body that you go to that kind of that you're comfortable with and it can bring you into uh, a, a stiller a state a state of stillness maybe your heart or um, or maybe you have a little mantra that you say that that helps like Breathing in, I think I, I know I'm breathing in, breathing out, I know I'm breathing out. So, um, just a few of my suggestions, and I'm sure that you all have many of them too. Um, and um, I think I'm going to close with another reading from Yoshin's book. Um, I think it's a, a beautiful paragraph. There will be a point where you will discover that there is an inner stability that has been with you all along, that there is something extraordinary that has been with you all along, and that is your own consciousness. The one who is inside and actually beholds the thinking activity. You may not yet know that part of yourself, but the one that goes in and sees the thinking activity and is not affected by it is that which will be with you all along and will never fail you. So we never give up our I am mind, which is a good thing. But the more we can step outside of it and the less seriously and more, the less seriously and more joyously we will experience it. So, um, that's the end of my talk. Then if there's any questions or any questions or any comments or anything you'd like to add about your own practice or your own experience with your thinking mind and your other mind, your mind of pure awareness, please speak up. Hey, Pat. Yes. Cool. Hey, um, so you mentioned following the breath to somewhat, I'm not sure if I understood correctly, but clarify and kind of multiply the effect of being in the big mind state. Is that, is that right? Is it to, um, is it more to lead you toward a big mind or also to kind of, I don't know if I want to use the word enhance it, but anchor you in that. Well, both, but I was talking about it as kind of a gateway to get you started uh, because when you pay attention to your breath, you kind of have to jump out of your thinking mind a bit to do that because that's a sensation that you're feeling. So you're following and you're following the breath to, uh, and I, I think of it as, as kind of yanking me out of my of my thinking mind to, to go to my breath or go to anywhere in my body, really. But of course, yes, it, it would anchor you. And that's what's so nice about the breath is it's always there and uh, you can stay with it. So, so it's a, it's a, 
well, I guess our breath in the, in the bigger picture of things, our breath is temporary, but uh, at least <laughs> this morning, it <laughs> may seem like something we can, we can hold on to. I, 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 I shouldn't say that because I don't like to think of holding on to something, but, you know, in a way that is what happens. But, yeah, get, 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 bringing, bringing your attention out of your head into your body is, is the way to, to is the, the entering into that, uh, that path towards towards awareness and thinking of things that you can do with your breath to really notice it even more deeply than you already do, you know, noticing. Yeah. Was that okay? Yeah. I have a comment, Pat. Okay, Sherry. So I, I thought it interesting that you use the word trigger in a kind of positive way because uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it never occurred to me that you could have a trigger and go into some, you know, pleasant, pleasantness instead of some <laughs> uh, negative feeling that you want to suppress before you explode or something. So <clears throat> that's good. I, I like that. <laughs> and uh, I'll think of that word differently now for sure that it's. Uh, yeah, I think you should think of a more gentle word for, <laughs> for that. <laughs> Oh, Pat, this is Tracy. Could I say something before we go to tea? Sure. Well, good morning. Morning. I've just picked up my breakfast tacos. I'm now pulling into a parking space. <laughs> Pat, that was such a wonderful talk. This is all I want to say, that I so appreciate the directness and you, we could even say simplicity of your highlighting what's always there. Yeah, I'm glad and you mentioned that. Always there. Always there. And we, can get so, we, can, we can get so turned around by so elevating... Oh, sorry. We can get so turned around, I can, by elevating into such lofty heights uh, what were you are just so experientially... Um, shared with us. So appreciate it, Pat. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And you reminded me, it's always there. It's always, always there. there. That part of us oh. is always there. The one who's not busy is kind yep. of, yeah. Yeah, but it's helpful to ask, Pat. I think, I think that story you told, excuse me, I think that story you told of the going down the river and, you know, checking in and, and, um, you know, he he was he was checking in. He was he was kind of well asking, which is what we do with ourselves. Which is, mm -hmm. are yeah. you there? Yes, <laughs> yes. Are you there? And I want to. Uh, you're a, you're a huge help, Tracy, because I did want to say uh, something about that. Because you know, inquiry is kind of a a big thing yeah. these days. Practice yeah. And you can inquire, and this is very helpful. Uh, uh, yeah. To uh, it was something I learned from um, um, what's his name, the guy that you meditate with in Tokyo. Uh, um, Tokyo, yes, I learned this from Tokyo. He said, mm -hmm. "You know, you can just always be. Am I there? Is the master in? Is, is yeah, it's, yeah, and it's a, a nice way to help stay on track too. It, it's it's a gateway. That I like that word you use. It's absolutely." A gateway and 
and and and and uh, check out Book of Serenity, case thirty-seven, um, the 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 verse. Oh yeah, it's it's one call. I think something like one call. One call. I can't. I don't have it in front of me now. One call, but which was a way of saying because you know the boy is sweeping and and they're they're, they're talking about um, the the. the the fundamental affliction of ignorance itself is the is the uh, the absolute Buddha or something to that effect. And the guy says, "What? What do you mean by that?" Because <laughs> it's from the Lotus Sutra. And, the other, and then and then the teacher says uh, he calls to. There's a boy sweeping nearby, and he says he says, "Hey!" And the boy turns and. He says, "There, see, uh, the 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 absolute confirmation of all Buddhas." And then he says to the boy, "What what is your Buddha nature?" And the boy looks bewildered, and then kind of lost, and then walks away. And then he says, "See, right there, the fundamental affliction of ignorance." So that's it, the fundamental affliction of ignorance. Uh, sorry for going on. Please check out that that case. <laughs> okay, that, great. Okay, case all right. Okay, bye. Thank you. I think, uh, Jose, you, you had your hand up. Did you, Jose? Oh, uh, yes, um, uh, Maureen did too, uh, but I guess I'll, uh, I'll jump ahead. Um, so uh, so uh, as you were talking about, you know, these moments of uh, anxiety that could build up uh, while we're sitting uh, and then uh, sort of sitting with that and trying to be aware of that, um, uh, you know, I've experienced, uh, you know, moments here and there like that uh, or, you know, of other, you know, emotions or thoughts. But um, what I've started to appreciate on a, on a subtler, uh, you know, more micro level uh, is uh, when you're sitting, uh, when I'm sitting and when I'm uh, yanking, when I, when, I, when I am yanked from small mind to big mind, uh, sometimes I you're notice. Yanked, not triggered, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so for whatever reason, who knows why, uh, you know, I am yanked. Um, and, I, and I'm left with this residual of, uh, in my body of these thoughts, uh, you know, these little like, micro anxieties. Like, I could just be thinking about something very mundane. And then when I'm yanked out, I'm like, well, wait a minute. Why are my eyebrows like, you know, uh, stressed or, you know, why are my teeth clenched? Oh, um, you're noticing all your body, the, the things your body, the state your body's in. And, just yeah. these little tiny things that happen, uh, happen every day. That's how we sort of deal with the stress of life. Even if the stress is a relatively minor, you know, we still feel it in our bodies. And so. Yeah, we can feel it very strong, even if it's minor. You learn that at, well, it's another thing you learn at Sushim. It's just the littlest things can really trigger, there's that word again, big, uh, <laughs> big upheavals. <laughs> But yeah. great, that you're noticing the, the tightness in your body and, you know, noticing it, what thieves, thieves, thieves don't stay there if a flashlight is shined on them, so. Right, <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah. Yeah, so then, uh, so, uh, Sam, uh, thank you for your uh, great talk today. Uh, it helped uh, put all of this into proper context, uh, so. Yeah. Okay, well, great. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, is, is, is anyone else? Hey, hey, hey Pat. Oh, okay. Well, both Maureen and Mary raised their hand. All right, Maureen, you're already unmuted, so you go first, and then Mary. Okay. All right. Um, it was such a great talk. I always, I always love your talks. But, and I also think this would be great just to tee up as like a link for new students, people new to meditation, because it's really accessible. It's really deep, you know. And and I think for everybody. Um, 
but I was thinking while you were talking, wow, this would be so great to hear this when you're new and you're kind of trying to figure out what this is all about. Um, so it's very deep, but it's also very accessible and it makes sense, you know, so I, I appreciate it. But I, and I think it'd be a great resource just to offer to people who are new uh, to meditation or Zen. So thank you, Pat. Okay, well, thank you very much for those very kind words. I guess it will be posted uh, with the Dharma talks. And um, yeah, thank you. Mary, what were you going to say? Well, first, thank you for your talk. Um, always instructive and uh, just really resonant and meaningful. That's the first thing. The second is... If you would bear with me, I wanted to uh, read a few stanzas from a poem that you brought to mind. It's called The Song of Mine by Zen Ming, who was, I think, the Zen Ming was the, the teacher of Wei Ning, Wei Ning, who was the fifth ancestor, uh, the... Um, um, uh, anyways, uh, actually, no, he was, it was written by Master, and I apologize for slaughtering his name, Nutu Farong, who was a disciple of the fourth patriarch of Chan Buddhism, Dai Dao Zin. Oh. Nutu was also a Dharma brother of the fifth patriarch, Daiman Hongran. Okay. Those so. people are in our lineage, yeah. Yeah, in our lineage. So he wrote this poem called Song of Mine. And the first couple of um, stanzas are, the nature of the mind is non-arising. What need is there of knowledge and views? Originally, there is not a single Dharma. Why discuss inspiration and training? Coming and going without beginning, sought for, it is not seen. No need to do anything. It is bright, still, self-apparent. The past is like empty space. Know anything and the basic principle is lost. Casting a clear light on the world, illuminating yet obscured. If one-mindedness is impeded, all dharmas are misunderstood. Coming and going thus, is there need for thorough investigation? Arising without the mark of arising, arising and illumination are the same. Desiring to purify the mind, there is no mind for effort. There's more, but that those are just the it's just a reinforcement in the way of your talk and a reminder that we are continuing this uh, journey started so long ago. Wow, thank you, Mary. Thank you for reading that. That is one of our sutras that we say, although it's a different translation. What's the name of that sutra? It's called Song of Mine. Um, yeah, then uh, that's uh, slightly different than what we Yeah, call. this is the interpretation of the Chan Master Xingyin. Mm, yeah. 
Well, anyway, that was beautiful. And thank you for reading that. It's really it's one of my favorites. Yeah. Well, that's a good note to end on, I think. Uh, unless anybody has anything else. Uh, so take it away, Bruce. Oh, Mark, did you want to say something? Grab the, the book uh, when uh, Tracy brought up uh, a, a Book of Serenity case 37. Uh -huh. Case 38 happens to be Linji's uh, true person of... Oh, oh, oh good. And uh, the translation says, there's a true man with no rank, always going out and in through the portals of your face. Beginners who have not yet wit witnessed it, look, look. And um, I've, I've looked at the, the Chinese text, and uh, the, the word that's translated as beginners here is, is actually beginning mind or beginner's mind. It's, it's, uh, the, it's the phrase that uh, Suzuki Roshi used. Um, and this may be like the the locus classicus or the sort of the source. I don't know if it's like the first source of the phrase, but it, it may be the the place uh, that it's it like entered into the Zen literature. Yeah. I'm so glad you read that. I, it's, it's in the Book of Serenity, even though it's Rinzai. I'm surprised. Yeah. But yeah, that, I, I, and I was actually going to say something about him saying that you can see that the man of no rank uh, coming into your face and, and as he's sitting there talking to his monks in and out, just so, you know, just the instantaneousness of, of this mind and how it, you know, comes and goes and yeah. Thank you so much for reading that. All right, thank you all very much. Thank you very much, Pat.